Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as we are going to speak with Lisa Mead about an initiative that she started called Social Currency. Here's an extract from my interview with her. The surgeon was quite serious when he said, you know, you you shouldn't have actually survived this. Been alive this morning. You know, you should have actually died in the night. That's what he said. Wow. Yeah. Every obstacle now, I know that I just have to persevere and and get through it because I've already been through that Mm -hmm. and that almost took my life. Mm -hmm. Um, If I hadn't have had that, I think I would have been very oblivious to the fact that, you know, we are all pretty, you know, susceptible to things that can just happen. Now, some of you listening may have noticed that last week I didn't put out an episode for the first time in about a year and a half. And that's because I'm switching the format a little bit in terms of the timing of releasing these interviews. So I'm going to be putting one out every two weeks instead of every week. I really want to make this podcast sustainable and have it go for a long time. And in order to achieve that, I think it's important not to burn out by trying to do it once a week. So that's the reason for the format change. But just a reminder that there are 84 other episodes in the back catalog, so there's plenty of material out there if you want to listen to more. And many thanks to all of you who are faithful listeners. Now I wanted to mention one other thing that's coming up, which is the Social Enterprise Unconference being held in the middle of February. If anybody's interested, I'll put a link to that in these show notes. And I'm going to go up to that. It's being held in Leven, and it's being co-organized by Thank You Payroll and Pledge Me. And it should be a really good weekend. The format for an unconference for those who haven't been before is that the first night you decide what it is that you're actually going to talk about during the coming days. There's a private Facebook group for those going, and I've already suggested there that it'd be great to interview some of the people who go along and find out what are some things that they've learned in the last year. And I have a feeling, based on the comments in the Facebook post, that that's going to develop into a session about how to do a podcast. So that's going to be really fun, and I might actually record it and release it here as well. Now let's get into this interview with Lisa. All right, such a pleasure to welcome Lisa Mead, who is the founder of Social Currency. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah. Um, On this podcast, and I know you've listened to some of the episodes, which Mm -hmm. is awesome because sometimes people come in and they've never heard one before. Yeah. But but you've actually listened to some. So you know, basically, what we're going to do is talk a little bit about your background Mm -hmm. and where you're from. And then I'm really interested to find out about social currency, which we were talking before we started recording um, began maybe about 10 weeks ago at, yep. at the time that we're recording this. Mm-hmm. So let's just begin by going right back to the beginning of your life and tell yep. us about where you're from. Yeah, so I grew up in Christchurch, so I'm a born and bred Cantabrian, red and black, through and through. Yep. I have three brothers, uh, one older, two younger. Uh, my father's an engineer, my mother is a, she sews, she's always stayed at home and and yeah, brought us up yeah. so um so yeah just a very like? standard kiwi upbringing really what was it like having three brothers oh yeah <laughs> hard um sometimes but at the same time i think they treated me like no one different so yeah. i was very much um forced to be you know just as good as them because right my older brother for one is very competitive 
And so there was no allowance. For there was <laughs> there was a certain bar that he had, and I had to you know meet it. So yeah, um, whether it was sports or anything, you know, it's it's come along for the ride or or stay at home. So right, yeah, very. So yeah. at the time, was that hard? Do you think, or or it was just your reality? He you didn't. Know um, I think I was just used to it. Yeah. Although you know, to some extent, when you when you see other kids with sisters who are a little bit more kind of what I would see as like dainty or playing with the dolls at home and things like that. I mean, I did that sometimes, but at the same time I had, you know, boys who were very rough and, you know, Mm. wanting to play. I remember rugby in the lounge was a very common occurrence with a a soft rugby ball. So, (laughs) you know, (laughs) running around the house, that sort of thing was was the normal. Yeah. So it was a pretty active childhood, it sounds like. Lots of outdoors type of things. Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember growing up playing cricket in the driveway a lot. Um, always outside, yeah, playing down down the road at the beach, um, running down the sand dunes and, yeah, that mm. sort of thing. So Yeah, so where were you living at that time? South New Brighton, so, okay. yeah, just by the beach. So we were, yeah, about 50 metres from the beach, so just across the road. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty ideal life, yeah. life, you know, location to... Yeah, I think um, growing up by the beach, you just don't appreciate as much as um, maybe you should. Right. It's, it's just kind of like, oh yeah, the beach is down there. We could we could go and swim or play down there or whatever. But it's mm. it's not. Um, yeah, we just kind of took it for granted. I, I think a little bit. Mm. Yeah, it's often like that, isn't it? When you look mm. back at your child, whatever your childhood, you yeah. don't really know what you you don't really know what's different because no. that's your reality. Yeah, so. and I found um, growing up in a in a big two story home, I. You know, I always wanted the the smaller home that was maybe nicer. But then now, when I have the smaller home with my son, he's telling me that he wants this, you know, bigger home. And I think, you know, right. it's one of those things you always want what you don't have, right? Regardless. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the way we're built as humans, isn't it? Yeah. So the, yeah. Look at the grass over there. <laughs> yeah, it's always yeah. Yeah. So, what sort of um, things did you enjoy then in childhood? We, you know, mm. outdoors was a big part of it. Was there other things? Yeah. Um, I was in scouts, mm-hmm. of all things, um, obviously, surrounded by boys. Um, didn't do the brownies thing. Um, a lot of sports, yeah. I was I was into um, running, a lot of running. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the, the zone sports. So in Canterbury, we had a lot of different um, sports that you could get into the zones for and then into the Canterbury's. Yeah. Um, so I was very competitive in, in those sorts of sports. So... Mm. Um, discus, long jump, sprints, relay, mm. long distance, um, high jump. I got the high jump uh, record in my high school, mm. that sort of thing. So, yeah, pretty much every single outdoor sport right. you could outdoor, think of, I'd yeah. be into it. Yeah. I'm getting a picture, you see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So was that all through your high school mainly? Or was it, what, did you join um, like a club or something? Was that part of it? It wasn't in a club. It was more in primary school that I got into that. Okay. Um, but... I kind of had to stop doing that to some extent because I had my appendix burst when I was 11, oh. um, which was just the, the year before I was going into high school. Right. Um, and that year I was just, yeah, I thought that I was going to win every sport and it was just about to hit that summer oh. period and I was like, yeah, I'm ready, I'm going to nail it. Yeah. And then, yeah, I just all of a sudden had this kind of, You're yeah, throwing a curveball, huh? Big, big curveball where... Wow. Um, I actually didn't know I had any issue with my appendix. I actually thought I had a stomach bug because I used to get those quite frequently when sure. I was younger. Yeah. Um, 
And yeah, it got to the point where I'd thrown up on Friday night and had some kind of family get together. My auntie's a nurse. She came in and said, oh, yeah, no, she looks fine. She's just, you know, a bit unwell. Oh, dear. Um, but the, <laughs> the throwing up is be... actually the trigger point when you have your appendix burst. Oh. So when you when you have that happen, there's, it's quite a big deal. You should be getting to the hospital kind of thing. Yeah. Um, got to Sunday night, and my mum made me make a chocolate cake because that's what I did back then. I used to make a lot of chocolate cakes. Okay. Um, just... <laughs> random thing um and she kind of said to me oh what's wrong with you you keep sitting down and having a rest and you know like just can you finish it and I was like no I'm actually like not feeling well yeah um and then yeah that night my dad said no this is not okay he went straight to our bookcase he brought out this medical book that he had and he started like firing through the pages like a maniac going I know she's got something and he kind of like landed on this page and he put his finger on it and he goes that's it that's what she's got and it was appendicitis or peritonitis actually when when it bursts Um, yeah so they they um so that's like uh life it was a big (laughs) yes it was life-threatening how um yeah, so what happened next? Yeah, so my mum drove me to Beliab Medical, which is the after hours here in Christchurch, mm-hmm. and they couldn't figure out what I had either because I have a high pain tolerance. So even though I was bent over to like 90 degrees, couldn't walk, I was not crying. I was just in a lot of pain and just mentally trying to cope with it. Right. Um, so they got an ambulance and, and got me into yeah, the emergency department, mm. and they couldn't give me any painkillers because when you're in something like that, they, they say, no, sorry, we can't give you anything. You need to, you know, not have anything go in your body so that we can identify what right, it is you've got. Right, we can check, yeah. Yeah, so they, um, they kept me in overnight, and they said, yep, in the morning we'll operate, first thing. Wow. Um, that didn't actually happen because there was somebody else that needed to be operated on when I was scheduled, so I actually had to wait until lunchtime. Um, but in between the time of being needing to be operated on first thing and the lunchtime, I actually felt really disconnected from my body. So I was like oh. in that real funny stage of what is happening here. I couldn't really understand because I was so young. Yeah. First thing I've, you know, first time I've ever had anything like that happen to me before. Wow. Um, and I actually had a moment where I, I don't actually tell many people about this, but I had like an outer body experience. So I actually remember looking, my mum walked out of the room and all of a sudden I had just like this moment and I was looking down on my body, which was like the weirdest thing because when you're, when yeah. you're like, you can't imagine these things. And I was just like, hang on. It just kind of went through my head like, this is not okay. Yeah. This is, there's something not quite right about this situation. And just, yeah, the next second I was back. Huh. And I was like looking at the wall ahead of me and I was like, this this shouldn't be happening. You wow. know, this is very strange sensa- sensation. Very strange. Um, See, I thought we were just going to talk about social currents. Yeah, yeah. So the, <laughs> I mean, that's later. Now we're, now we're into out-of-body experience. Yeah. At, so, so, descri- so you're 11 years old. You're yeah, pretty 11, young. Like, yeah. um, describe, uh, I guess, a little bit more about that. Yeah, like, so it's probably, yeah because it's one of those really, really significant events for me. Um, I just remember after I was operated on and seeing my surgeon, so they, they took us to the, his little office, mm-hmm. it was quite dark, um, and he looked me in the eyes and he said, you should be dead. Really? Yeah. 
Wow. He said, there's no way you should be alive right now. He said, we had to... So what, what I had happen was I had gangrene in my um, intestines and my stomach, which is basically all of everything that had kind of exploded when everything right. went... When, when the appendix yucky burst. And, and, yeah, yeah, normally when you hear about somebody having gangrene in their leg or something, they'd chop the leg off. I see. So it's quite a nasty wee thing to have happen. And yeah. what that ended up doing was ruining all my sports that year because right. I actually couldn't do anything for a solid three months. Yeah. Um, had to recoup and, and had a lot of scar tissue. And um, yeah, I was kind of struggling to walk to the toilet and back, that kind of thing. So when you have those yeah. things happen, it's quite um, what I would call resilience building. Yeah. Um, really hard mentally to kind of get through mm. something that was so not expected. Um, yeah, I was in the hospital for five days and I was just not really coping with the whole thing. And I had another girl next next to me and she had appendicitis, which is the lesser right. of the two when they can actually operate before it explodes. Right. Um, and her mother obviously kind of saw me one day and she was like, she kind of came over to me and she said, Lisa, you're going to have to fight. Hmm. And I just looked at her and I was like, what? What do you mean? I just had never had that. Mm. Like, this is serious. Right. So, yeah, in that moment, it kind of like, it was like one of those penny drop. I was like, this is, this is like my life now. I have to actually... Yeah. Like really fight for it. So this is your life to live. And yeah. Do you so choose it almost to live got or... taken. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that was quite full on. So I can see where that would color your entire history that comes after, yeah. right? Like... Yeah. So it kind of created a situation where I'm very grateful for every day that I, I have. Um and yeah, I'm I'm quite yeah, powerfully driven to live every day as though it could be my last really mm. yeah well there's very few people i've ever spoken to who've actually yeah you know been that close to death mm -hmm. yeah yeah the, i mean that wasn't the only time i've had a near-death experience either so i right. think that kind of like compounds when you have more than one so right i mean i had um so just before we get to that just mm -hmm. with the appendix when did he think that it had burst was it like the friday yeah, night, night or, uh, or friday the, night yeah sorry right yeah so, so you went saturday sunday monday yeah, yeah yeah which normally yeah wow mm. so you <laughs> yeah so i think i was actually like unwell mm. since the wednesday so from wednesday to monday right um but yeah the surgeon was quite serious when he said you know you you shouldn't have actually survived this been alive this morning you wow. know you should have actually died in the night that's what he said wow yeah and um how did your parents feel? <laughs> mm, they were shocked. Yeah. Uh, my dad was quite proud. He's still proud. Yeah. Um, yeah to at this least day. Cut it at that point. Oh, huh? yeah. He's, yeah. he's um, yeah, very proud of his book collection and his, his medical book. And he right. was able to diagnose me. I think because, as well, my auntie being a senior a nurse. nurse at the hospital at the time and, and she didn't pick it up. But yeah. I guess it's one of those things, you know, if, if someone it's a child has a. And, you know, they're feeling yeah. sick. Yeah. yeah, and I just think just shows the value of double checking, doesn't it? And, oh yeah, you know if if somebody's not well, mm. make sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Always ask for a second opinion. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You described your mother leaving the room, yeah, and sort of the out of body experience. Like, yeah, that's really a clear, vivid memory for oh, you. Oh yeah. Oh, I can. Yeah. 
Like, I have a lot of... I don't have a lot of memories, but the memories I do have are very vivid. Like, I literally see it like... Mm. Like, like a photograph, right yeah, like a photographic memory right now. I can see that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was literally, you saw yourself there. I can remember the room exactly. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Well, I can see where that would change everything yeah. <laughs> going yeah. forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you, having been given that news and, mm. you know, you should be dead mm. as an 11 year old. Yeah. How do you, how do you process that? I had no idea what to say. Yeah. Um, I kind of looked at my parents like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I just didn't know how to react, how mm. to respond. Mm. Um, I think between that, I was already a little bit in shock with the whole experience anyway. Sure. Um, my biggest concern at that point was the fact that, you know, how long was it going to take before I could yeah, get I back to my sports? Jump. You know, I've got my high jump to win this year, you know, yeah, I'm um, going to set the record, right? I need to need to get to the zones again, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a very strange back. experience. Yeah. So the question I have is looking back, mm. you know, with hindsight, the beauty of hindsight, yeah. the, the life course where you, this didn't happen mm. and you went to zones and did well yeah. versus this. What is it that, what do you think has shaped in your character into Mm. who you've become um, as a result of that? Huge perseverance. Um, Every obstacle now, I know that I just have to persevere and and get through it because I've already been through that Mm -hmm. and that almost took my life. Mm -hmm. Um, If I hadn't have had that, I think I would have been very oblivious to the fact that, you know, we are all pretty you know, susceptible to things that can just happen. So how long did it take you to recover then? Mm, A lot longer than I thought. Right. Yep. Um, Probably at least six months. Um, So from, so I missed all of my summer sports. Mm. I ended up having to do discus. That was the only one I was allowed to do because I could only stand in one spot. And I got into the Canterbury's for discus. Right. Which is crazy. So you're still out there. You want to give I it still, your, yeah. It was what you wanted to do. Mm, mm. <laughs> Even though it hurt a little bit, but um, I was still quite determined. Yeah. Yeah. So then, yeah, I had to go into high school the next year and, yeah, kind of ease my way into that, which mm-hmm. was interesting because once you've had something that significantly alters your mindset, yeah, you're so like a you, new person. Yeah. Did you... Well, describe that. What, mm. what do you mean by that? In what way were think, you, and particularly compared yeah. to the other, I guess, by then 12-year-olds or, mm. you know, mm. like what, what was it that was different? Yeah, I think I had like a new appreciation for what I had, yeah. um, which was an able body. Um, I had actually, I remember one of the other patients at the hospital who really changed my perspective on things. He, he wheeled himself in on the wheelchair and he was burnt from head to toe, hmm. and it was quite devastating. Um, I actually couldn't speak at the time because they'd kind of put me on all these meds to kind of calm me down and, and all the rest of it, um, right. and to keep so the pain just level soon down. After the surgery yeah, and things. I I was on morphine, so there was I had a lot of pain to deal with and a little yeah. clicky thing to keep me on a a good um, level of yeah painkillers so um yeah i had had this guy wheel in yeah a playstation for me and he he put it at the end of the 
of my bed and he gave me the remote and he helped me with it and I couldn't even say thank you. Wow. Because I actually physically couldn't speak. Yeah. Um, and I think I remember just like looking at this guy and he did like a little wheelie in the hallway, <laughs> you know, like showing off clearly. Yeah. But I thought, wow, if this guy has burns all over his body and he's helping me, like that was like a turning point really. I just thought right? I need to appreciate what I've got right now because yeah. he's doing this for me and he's may not be walking you know, right now, and he may not be walking again. I didn't really know what mm. what he kind of had going on, but yeah, the fact that I couldn't even say thank you to him was was quite hard. Mm. Um, and I felt bad because I could only I could only focus on, you know, a little part of the game that he even let me kind of play. Right, set me up. Um, so was he a patient there as well? Yeah, or? he was a patient in in yeah. the ward that I was in, which uh, the children's unit. Yeah. Okay. So, wonder where he is now. Yeah, no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, yeah. it's just interesting though that those acts of kindness oh, often yeah, huge. make a big difference. Yeah, even, you know, years and years later, that, that yeah. you would remember it that vividly. That, oh, that yeah. was the moment that you thought, I've you know mm. basically taken so much for granted yeah. about having a body that functions. Yeah, I just remember seeing all the scarred, mm. you know, um, tissue all over his body and. Yeah, his face was quite... Yeah. Yeah, it was quite hard to see. Yeah. So you come back, to, you're then going into school, mm. and you've yep. got this new perspective. Yeah. Um, what do you think that did? Or Yeah, I was um, slower to speak, actually. Um, I took my time in analyzing situations and people and was kinder to people. Right. Um, yeah, I just remember just... Taking my time a little bit more, mm-hmm. why, stepping why, back. Why taking the time to really yeah. get the full picture? And um, I think it's because when I realized, you know, when I got out of the hospital, people, if they were quick to speak or quick to judge, they didn't realize that even though I was walking around, mm. I was significantly, you know, injured mm-hmm. at the time, effectively. Um and I think I, I grew a new perspective and it doesn't matter mm. if people look able-bodied, they might have something else going on yes. mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever it might be. Mm. They might be struggling with something. You can't see those things. It's internal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it brought a really huge turning point for me mm. to understand that myself. It, it created empathy, mm. which I don't believe that I had a huge amount of before. Right. Yeah. Which is so vital these days, in yep. particularly in the context of technology and mm-hmm. Facebook status updates, yep. where you can portray an image that everything's mm. fine, I'm on a beach or whatever, yep. and you, and yet it's masking the reality that you're going through a really hard time, mm. and you're, you know, afraid yep. to ask for help, basically. Yeah, I think perception is everything, and I think those sorts of things, social media, mm-hmm. um, can create a really negative. Um, portrayal really at Mm. the end of the day because people might not be okay and they're just not confident to say it Mm. because they need to keep up with all of these happy posts Mm. and fluffy posts and you know less inclined to be vulnerable or courageous or brave or Mm. honest really Mm. I think honesty is is the biggest thing that you don't see Mm. on social media because nobody wants to know about the bad days 
They mm. only want to know about the good days, but mm. that needs to change. Yeah, I agree completely. I think I've, I've noticed recently that, well, it's not recently. It, I guess what I've noticed is that whatever somebody presents like, mm. usually there's something in their life that you yep. don't know. And it might not even be their particular issue. It might be their parents mm. or their sister or somebody has a health issue or whatever, but there will be something that's on their mind yep. that you would not get from the initial sort of, how yeah. are you doing? You know? Dig a little bit deeper and you yeah. might find out something else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's that empathy, isn't it? Yep. It's the, the ability to connect with and yep. relate to other people. Yeah. And I think just taking a little bit more time. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Time is money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. So making that conscious effort to mm -hmm. slow down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. So just thinking through your high school years, mm -hmm. um, we're kind of taking a lot of time here, but it's mm -hmm. been really interesting. Yeah. So, um, what, what sort of things did sports continue to dominate as you recovered and things or what, what uh, were you into? Growing up high school, a little bit more on the academic side, mm -hmm. I think that I chose to kind of go, go down. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember my maths teacher in fifth form, she said to me, if you don't do statistics or calculus, you are not going to be an accountant. And I said, I don't care. And I said, I'm going to do some other subjects. And I chose sociology instead. And everybody thought this person's crazy. Yeah. Um, because everybody thought I was going to be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor right. or whatever, you know. So and I just that thought, well, future. yeah. And I yeah. thought, well, people are more interesting to me so yeah I did that and then I I actually had a really great teacher who was my Latin teacher which is you know not really that helpful now but um he was a really inspiring teacher he he passed away from um, cancer a few years ago but he was probably the one who made the most mm. difference to me he influenced me because he was just so inspired by something in me that I couldn't see at the time really and yeah he used to he made an an effort with me which I think yeah really impacted me and and made me think a little bit deeper he used to pick up all of our rulers and and whack them on our desks and break them in half so I went and bought a plastic one that was like twisty so that it couldn't break and he just whacked it and it didn't break and he was like what <laughs> <laughs> tried it again it didn't break so it was like a bit of a a little bond that happened there <laughs> yeah yeah so huh. but he used to um take us to his home and have pizza nights and things like that. So mm. he actually cared more than what you would normally expect. So right. he, um, yeah. It's, it's amazing the influence that a good teacher can have. Yeah. Isn't it? Like to yeah. inspire and to, and to, you know, what you're he saying. He was just so see. passionate and yeah. I, that really brought it out in me. Right. Yeah. He was just, he loved Latin, the culture, the language, everything. And, and even though, like, that's not a huge part of me. Yeah. Um, I actually have a tattoo on my back that says Carpe Diem, right. which means seize the day. Mm -hmm. And that's something that really resonates with me because I think, you know, everybody needs to take the day and the time that they've got and really use it. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, th those teachers that can see the potential mm. when you can't even see yeah. it in yourself. Yeah. Like, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd love to turn a little bit, starting mm -hmm. to shift our focus towards social currency. Mm -hmm. But I think to be able to understand the significance of social currency, mm. I, I, we really need to unpack a little bit uh, about other things that mm. happened in your life. So mm -hmm. um, in particular, because I know um, you do a lot of work in sort of prison mm -hmm. and access yep. to between children and, mm -hmm. and, 
and family members in prison. Yep. So can you just describe a little bit? Do you mind telling us a bit more? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess um, probably have to go back a few years. Yep. Um, so my son, Dakota, is now nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I became a single parent when he was 10 weeks old. And in the past four years, his father has been in jail uh, four times. And in 2017, I decided... Well, I fundamentally don't believe that prison is a place for children. Um, So I decided to approach Corrections, Ministry of Corrections, and Mm. send a letter to them with a proposal for video calling. So that's where a child can sit in a community room with a video in front of them so that they can see their parent. um, And their parent sits in a room, which is called AVL facility, Mm -hmm. um, at the prison. So there's no um, physical contact but it's um, still that facial stuff and that emotive stuff Mm. that I think is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, So I asked for half an hour a month per child to be able to use AVL facilities. Mm. So it took me three or four letters um, back and forth to understand that there were AVL facilities for a start in every prison across the country, Um, but also to hear that my child maybe not necessarily just him but this this thing that I wanted was not the priority of corrections at the time mm-hmm. um, I, I am still convinced that this is important mm-hmm. um, even though it's it's not a situation or an issue for my son right now uh, it could be and the fact is there's 20,000 children at any one time with a parent in prison in New Zealand so mm-hmm. You know, understanding that this is actually a large issue and that technology mm-hmm. is an amazing resource mm. that we can be using should be a topic of discussion. Um, yeah, getting getting the no, I really took that personally because I thought, well, you know, if this is not a priority, it's a priority to me, mm-hmm. um, not just because of my son, but because of all the other children out there that are affected by this. Mm. Um, I think intergenerational statistics are horrific in New Zealand. Um, there's a statistic that says that my son is over nine times more likely than any other child to end up in prison when he's older, and that's because of risk factors. Um, one risk factor being the situation with his father, one being me because I'm a single parent, Um, So when I saw those sorts of statistics, I thought, well, I don't like that for a start because, yes, I'm a single parent, but I'm very different maybe to other people. I'm Mm. I'm running my own business now. I've been a a CA for a few years. I've um, worked in accounting firms for 10 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm not that, you know, standard stereotype or statistic Mm. that, that you see around the place. So I thought, well, if I'm in the position to do something about it, then I can and I will. Mm. So that's and I kind guess of on behalf of all the other people who yep. aren't able to absolutely to push for it. Yeah, but who would benefit? Yeah, because that statistic is amazing. Twenty thousand mm-hmm. children, mm-hmm. right, throughout yep. New Zealand, and presumably yep. technology. Part of the pitch is, um, you know, distance is yep. irrelevant because yep. you can be in Christchurch mm-hmm. talking to somebody in Wellington, mm-hmm. or you know, it, it's um, yeah. technology enables, right? Yeah. Huge. Um, I think utilising technology is the way of the future. And I think if you can create positive relationships um, with children and their parents, Mm -hmm. that is the way to go. Mm. Um, I don't think um, physical contact is necessarily 
the be all and end all. Mm. I think having a face to face conversation is much better than a phone conversation. You don't have to be using a chat feature or a you mm-hmm. know like an MSN messenger type thing or a Skype. Right. Um, and that's what was referred to as being you know the reason that 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 wasn't the route they wanted to take. Mm. Um, but you know, video to video, it's it's an amazing tool that that could be used. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned that you've um, been working in accounting for a yeah. while. Um, maybe just describe, I guess, how you got into that and mm-hmm. when when was that? Yeah. Um, so June 2008, I uh, kind of fluked in a way, a junior position in a small accounting firm in Christchurch. Okay. Uh, I'd been studying a couple of papers at the time, didn't really understand what accounting was. I knew I was good with numbers. Um, and I had to describe at the time, I remember, what an asset and a liability was, um, which I could do off the top of my head right now right. if I needed to, <laughs> but at the time it was terrifying. What am I doing? Um, yeah. But somehow I, I got through that, and yeah, about nine months later I was purchased by a very large firm called KPMG, Okay. Uh, which I had never heard of at the time, and I was pregnant as well by yeah. then, um, with my son Joe uh, in July, mm-hmm. so moving to KPMG first of April, so about four months yep. at KPMG before I had my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and a huge change of shift because you have another person in mm, your life, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can you describe to me a little bit about that transition mm. to be working and then mm-hmm. to be working and with a child, like yep. being a working mum? Yeah. So. Yeah, two and a half months. Because I think months. that's something that we don't talk very much about mm. in society. Um, I'd just love to unpack from your experience, yep. I guess, what that was like. Yeah, and really interesting. Yeah, being go wherever in you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I was having to drop my son off at daycare mm-hmm. um, first thing in the morning, and I'd get to work um, sometimes, you know, 7.30 in the morning and, and things like that and, and leave by 3, 3.30, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I was quite often asked the question, oh, do you work part-time? No, I work full-time. I just start earlier. Right. Um, I'm here two hours before you. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think working full-time, raising a child, which is, you know, all very new to me. Yeah. Um, I was also studying part-time at nights through Open Politics. So right juggling things um became the norm for me Mm. um but yeah very difficult i think the biggest thing was i've had um some good positive role models for my son during that time so Mm. um his kuru looked after him when he was younger Mm -hmm. um and they've been really supportive his um, father's side of the family Mm -hmm. right the way through so that's that's been pretty amazing um i don't think everybody gets that so i was quite lucky with that Mm -hmm. um um, side to their business so corporate social responsibility so yeah i kind of as soon as i found that i got stuck right in so i was the csr um lead for the christchurch office and and dealt with the national mm. firm and and did all sorts of volunteering um lead and uh yeah so that was starting to open your eyes to the mm. possibility you could be an accountant Combining? yeah exactly because mm. that's i think where we're about to get to yes. is what you're doing now mm. but it sounds like that was you know, opening your eyes Definitely. to I can be an accountant and I can yep. help this community group or organization yep. with some, you know, pro bono or yeah. 
subsidised or whatever. Yeah, so KPMG has a partner school arrangement where they um, partner with a local low decile school. So mm-hmm. I set up the relationship with the Kurafakapumo, which is in Opawa in Christchurch, and okay. it's a full immersion Māori te reo speaking school. Wow. So that was pretty important for me, and that's, I mean, the relationship there was easy because I had my son's uncles um, going there at the time, Tamati and Te Apatu, so... Mm-hmm. Uh, I already had relationships, Those connections, yeah, yeah, with the Tumuaki and and things like that. So I was already reasonably connected, and it, it was a no-brainer, really. Yeah. Um, I did various roles around the place, um, secondments and things. So uh, one at a place called Supergrands, which is no longer there, um, but we did. I had another um, manager at KPMG at the time set up an arrangement where if I was to work at Supergrands and help them with their wind up process then a payment from Supergrands would go to to Kurafakapumo of $5,000 so mm. when you're kind of enabled to do good in in your role it, it does create meaning it does change your thinking of how things can you know be meaningful and, and do good mm. something more than just a job title, huh? <laughs> yeah, I think it, it changed from my initial ideas of GST reconciliations and yeah. trial balances and journals. I definitely transitioned into something completely different. Yeah. And um, why don't you just describe a little bit about social currency mm. or maybe take us up to speed yep. to what you're doing now? Because I'd yep. love to spend a bit of time on that and really yep. understand yep. how it's working and what your plans are. Mm. So I incorporated social currency last year in November, so it's a, technically a year old, mm. um, and that was while I was at my previous firm, Kendon's. So mm. what I pitched to them at the time was, hey, I've got this client base, um, will you give me 10% of all of the fees that they're paying and let it go into social currency, and then I'll pay donations to uh, organisations supporting at-risk kids. Right. And at the time... Uh, I remember the guy, uh, the partner that I that I asked first. He sat back in his chair and he kind of breathed and he sucked in the air and he, can I just think about this for a few days? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, very different, terrifying concept. I think when you're talking to four or five male partners in a in an accounting firm and you're pitching, hey, can you just give me some money and I'm just gonna. Um, yeah. Do some good stuff with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was how it started. So right. I worked. So you were still working within yeah. that environment. Yeah. So they enabled me to change my role to some extent. So they allowed me to be speaking to various organizations mm. and, and setting up different things. And yeah, just. It's really great. They were really farsighted to yeah. allow that. Yeah. I think they realized this person is very driven. Sure. We need to be. A little bit flexible here and see where this goes so they knew what i was doing right the way along yeah um oh that's great well a shout out to them for having that yeah you know the the big enough vision to accept something that is yeah. not normal because that's, that's definitely that's not really something cool. that i've seen before yeah yeah so just talk us through um i guess the well firstly let's look at the the, the title social mm-hmm. currency mm-hmm. what are you meaning by that yeah so it's basically people and numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so my tagline is creating an even playing field, um, which basically means helping kids to be just like any other kid in the classroom, no matter what is going on 
at home for them or mentally, emotionally for them. Um, I have another one called Whakamahia Taputia Motipai, which means using money for good, mm-hmm. which is basically social currency. So it's mm. doing accounting for a good purpose. Really what I'm hearing you're describing is sort of two parts to your business, mm-hmm. sort of the, the side that helps with the accounting and particularly focused on charities and not-for-profits yep. and things. Mm-hmm. But then the other side is that uh, reaching out particularly to children. Yeah, It's really the... The age group I'm looking at is between 7 and 10 years old, and okay. that's because of the engagement that I believe can happen in that age in that age group. Yeah. Um, and really, it's it's to support kids to have resilience no matter what happens. Mm. And yeah, maybe that kind of goes back to maybe I wasn't really ready for a situation that I needed resilience for. Mm. So yeah, it kind of ties into that a little bit, I suppose. Mm. Um, but it's more, you know... Youth suicide rates are horrific in New Zealand. If you can create resilience mm-hmm. in order to build a good base when things happen, mm-hmm. because I think kids can become at risk at any point in time. Mm-hmm. If you can build good building blocks, yep. they're ready and, and to some extent. To, and help them to deal with the hard times when they yep. come, right? And yep. No, I love it. I mean, the pre-teenage years yep. and even quite young, you know, yep. 7 to 10 or whatever, that's... Yeah. That's a critical time of life. Mm. I know um, I've got young kids, as you know, and mm. um, one of the things they've been learning is this concept of gross mindset. Yes. You know, the gross mindset. Yep. And and don't say you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Say I can't do it yet. Yeah. And um, I think that's quite because they're they're all quite young, you know, yep. but they're learning these messages that I yeah. certainly never had <laughs> yeah. when I was in primary school, you know, like. Yeah. So the growth mindset actually was one of the big drivers for me to continue mm. Um, to create social currency, I suppose. Okay. Um, and that was because of something that happened late last year when my son mm. just really wasn't coping. And I thought, what can I physically do to support him right now? I see. And I found a book written by Professor Carol Dweck, which is Growth Mindset, um, and all about discovering potential and, and mm. having the right yeah, mindset and and framework really for looking at things and dealing with things yeah so i read that immediately yeah and i thought right where are the nearest resources that i can put in front of my son so that he can learn this and i found a lot of videos on youtube and i stuck them right in front of him i said you can watch this before you play your minecraft right (laughs) (laughs) and um i actually found the difference was immediate it was amazing yeah overnight um so I thought if so it's this can help him, yeah. oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So it created a situation where he was seeing that it didn't matter um, what his father was doing. Mm. He turned around to me and he said, um, "I don't have to go to jail when I'm older." Mm. You know, it's it's these things that these conversations that happen at school, these mm. you know things that go on in in our kids' heads that you know, not necessarily spoken about, Sure, that can affect them so significantly. Mm. And if we can open them up and mm. help them to feel better about themselves and give them a different outlook, I think that's really powerful. Mm. So he quite quickly learned, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not good in this area yet, but I can be. Yes. You know, versus what's called a fixed mindset, which is you can only do this or you're defined by these stereotypes, these statistics. So it really moves the needle. 
Um, and I, yeah, from from learning about that myself personally and, and putting it in front of my son, I realized this stuff has potential. And mm. as much as the growth mindset is a little bit of a fluffy term to some people, it is really some basic stuff about positive outlook, positive yeah. mindset, and just changing the way you think to fulfill your potential, which is actually the title of that book. Yeah. Um, so I just think the the potential that is there for all of these kids to just start to look at things differently is huge. Mm. And that's what I want to bring in to schools and kids and help to inspire them really, because I think that every child deserves to be successful. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I, well, I, again, completely agree with you. Mm. I, um, I actually interviewed my own daughter for yes, this podcast. Yes, I heard that. Did you? Yeah. 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 So you probably heard her because she's the yeah. one who was talking about growth mm-hmm. mindset. Yeah. And then as a result of that interview, um, she was asked to do a TEDx talk. Yes. For TEDx yeah. use. Watch that. Oh, have you? Okay. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, at the time of recording, it just came yeah. out. Um, but that was one of the things that she talks about mm. is having a growth mindset. Yeah, I think it's and applicable to yeah children and adults. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what she's kind of saying is, mm-hmm. you know, as a kid, you adults, you can learn yep. from us and our, mm-hmm. you know, if we have gross mindsets, we can achieve yeah. things that we didn't know yeah, that we could. <laughs> there's really no kind of stopping point. I think mm. when you have a, you know, a switch to a, what is called a growth mindset, you, yeah. you can create some potential that maybe wasn't there before because you're opening your mind to possibilities. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So um, let's just bring it up to now mm-hmm. um, in terms of what what's keeping you busy, I guess, mm. in the day-to-day. Yeah. <laughs> so my day-to-day, I try to split strategically between my business yep. and the social impact side. So I call myself a social impact business, and mm-hmm. that's because I do have a standard business, which is specifically profit making it's an accounting firm so business advisory accounting tax all of the standard stuff it's no different to any other firm but i choose to give away 10 percent of my sales so that's top line so 10 cents in every dollar goes to supporting at-risk kids and supporting a growth mindset in these Mm. children so yeah it's a very impact driven firm so that that was personal purposeful mm-hmm. i started it out like that so um mm. no, i'm, I'm being transparent about what i'm doing i'm i'm willing to say this is exactly what i'm going to do and you know make donations and invest this money into things that are going to have these outcomes mm-hmm. i love the word impact because mm. i think it does it's it's very easy to understand yeah <laughs> yep. but i notice you didn't use the word social enterprise no. business um, so is that a conscious choice mm-hmm. in terms of the t- the terminology that you're yeah. using? Because yeah, I think is. you know that I've done a lot with social enterprises, mm-hmm. which has been a word that's used a lot. Yeah. Um, but yeah. just talk us through your thinking yep. around the, the way that yeah. terminology is used. So my idea of social enterprise is, for example, Cultivate Christchurch, which um, does agricultural farming and has young people... Um, they have young people come along and work on the farms and and increase their confidence and yeah. help them into the workforce and things like that. So they, to me, are doing the good stuff. Sure. Um, whereas as part of their business. Yes. So model that's their business model. They're the people they're paying or employing yep. or getting as volunteers are yep. actually doing 
what they're doing. Yeah, and yeah. they also have that agri side where it's um, sustainable farming yeah. and all the healthy stuff and all the rest of it. Yeah. Whereas um, if you shift to what I'm doing, mm-hmm. I have a profit-making business, um, which is a professional services firm. Yes. Um, and I'm taking 10% and putting it into the good stuff. So it's mm-hmm. it's very different in my opinion, to a true social enterprise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I do hear the social enterprise term a lot, Yeah. Um, but I chose to define myself as a social impact business because my business is purpose-driven to change intergenerational statistics around crime, poverty, and low educational attainment. Mm-hmm. So I have a very clear mission and vision mm-hmm. around my business and what I do, but it is still a business. Mm. No, that's very helpful to understand. So can I just unpack the little bit? Because you are doing Mm. some of the work that you're doing Mm -hmm. is for charities, not for profits, other social, you know, social enterprises. Yeah, so some of my clients are social enterprises, um, charities, not for profits. So Mm. that's, they are really my ideal client because they understand what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But to some extent, the majority of my client base is your standard Mm -hmm. small to medium business, um, Mm mum and dad's, um, yeah a whole yeah whole Wide kind variety. of very very varied uh varied client base really i mean anything from trades to uber drivers to hairdressers beauty mm. therapists um professional services mm. you name it so mm. yeah yeah no that's good it's good to just unpack terms because yes. i think sometimes people will we get i get confused mm. and i'm dealing with it every day yeah. <laughs> so to understand what you're actually meaning by a Mm. social impact business. I think it's, yeah, that's very helpful. Yeah. So it's it's really at the end of the day, um, sustainable social impact. Mm -hmm. I like to see it as. Yeah. 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 That's good. In terms of the future and what you'd like it to become, Mm. or um, have you got some goals? Yeah. (laughs) Tell me your goals. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would like to see kind of a 5 million revenue base to be able to invest a significant amount of money mm-hmm. into good stuff, really. Mm-hmm. I try to keep my my thinking quite simple, um, scalable at the same time. So I'm actually working with other firms to create that scale that mm-hmm. I'm talking about as well. So I've got various firms that are what I call partner firms. Mm-hmm. So where I pick up a client that might be larger or smaller than what I think I can kind of look after in the best way. Sure. I can use my partner firms and say, hey, this client is a really good fit for you guys. How about you take it? And that 10% commission comes in. So that's the same way the Kendon's mm-hmm. model was working. I see. So that's where the scale really is mm-hmm. in finite. You mm-hmm. know, it's... it's and um, the interesting thing about that, let's just think about that, is you're really talking... Because most firms are mm-hmm. very competitive. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of part of the model of... Um, the Western corporate, isn't it? Corporate business model is, yeah. I'll stab you in the back if yes. I get the chance. So, so what you're talking about is it. right. Yeah. So my my approach is networking and people, and I believe that the most significant impact can happen when you have people working together, mm-hmm. and that's all I'm trying to do. So mm-hmm. I don't want to just do it myself. I believe that. Yeah impact is in the power of numbers Mm -hmm. 
which resonates very well with your intergenerational yes. approach. You know, this yep. isn't a short-term no, it's long-term fix or solution. It's a yeah, you can't fix this <coughs> stuff overnight. I think it, you need to be investing a mm. lot and over a long period of time as well. Mm. So do you think this is going to be part of the future of business? Like, will we listen mm. to this podcast in 10 or 20 years and yeah. there will be more professional firms that have become impact I, I do think that this is the way things are going and the reason I say that is because I've already had quite a few firms from different backgrounds as well so not just accounting I've had lawyers mm. um, yeah, various different businesses contact me um, after kind of seeing something about my business and they've said wow I'm inspired by what you're doing mm-hmm. you know we're giving say 2% at the moment but I am going to aim for 10% Right. Because I like that idea because impact is important and people engage with positive difference mm. in society and for people. So, you know, there's there's a lot of things that drive different people. For me, it's something that I'm living with on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, but for other Im- influencers um, or businesses who have the ability to do something different, mm-hmm. that's huge potential. Mm-hmm. That's a huge space that can change Um, and all it really takes is somebody to sit down and go I'm really passionate about this particular issue Mm -hmm. I'd like to see it change and I'm going to incorporate something into my business that does something towards Mm. that Mm. and when you were looking before you started it were there other examples overseas or within New Zealand Mm -hmm. that you saw like for example the 10% figure Mm. how did you come up with that rather than 15 or 5 or 25 or whatever um I just don't really like the 15% number um (laughs) it's GST yeah um (laughs) I think 10% is a simple number and I think it's a number people can understand yeah um, I mean, I grew up, my mum's a Christian, I'm a Christian, 10% is kind of the tithe figure that they mm, talk about a lot. I was going to say, it's kind of a biblical thing, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> um, it is. It's not necessarily the reason I chose 10%, but sure. um, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like you say, it's simple. You know, yeah. people can understand 10%, one-tenth of something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a simple number. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. Can I go a different direction now? Mm-hmm. Um you mentioned before when you were at KPMG, you were involved mm-hmm. with a school, mm. which was a Tereo school. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that um, Maori culture has played mm. a role in yep. your life in different ways. Yeah. Um, can you just describe that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. Um, I think Maori culture has, to some extent, been quite significant in my life, mainly because I grew up with um, some people around me that, that were quite influential. So instead of staying at home and school holidays, I would actually go and stay with um, family friends um, out in Burling's Flat, which is a, mm. a little beachy coastal kind of town just out of Christchurch. Um, so I would do earling in my holidays at nights um, instead of, I don't know what other people did, but that's what I did. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's something that I used to do, bag them up afterwards chop them up the next day, hang them up to dry, eat them raw. Um, Don't think I'd eat them raw today, but I mean, it's (laughs) it's just, you know, something that I grew up Mm. with. So being around the Māori culture, um, you know, it's just something that's normal for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, having uh, an extended whānau now Mm -hmm. is 
quite a significant part of my life mm-hmm. because growing up um, with my family is quite small. Right. I've only got a couple of cousins here and there and things like that. Um, it's not despite really that the, big. Despite the three brothers, it's not yeah. extended. I mean, right? that, the, yeah, I have a few nieces and nephews now, but yeah. Um, yeah, growing up, that side of my family was, was pretty small. Because mm. um, yeah. I interviewed someone named Amy Marsden um, from mm-hmm. Tamapua, mm-hmm. and she described the idea of whanau mm. as something much bigger than yep. most of us think of it, as, or at least yeah. I had thought of it. I mm-hmm. thought of it as kind of a limited sort of roughly family you know yeah but actually she was describing it as a much larger you know in your network almost like come and eat with us you're part of our fun out yeah yeah which i thought was a beautiful thing yeah and and we're missing in western society i think yeah so um dakota's kuru is not actually related to him by blood right but he's been the strongest male role model for him growing up Mm. and so for us that's really important. Mm. Um, so it's quite strange, actually. My son did not recognize black and white until he got to school when other kids pointed it out to him. Mm. So he did not understand yeah. that his kuru had a different color skin, mm. which is you know crazy when you think about it. Mm. But that's how he's grown up and that's what he's used to. Mm. And I think you know we need to be teaching our kids less about what the color on the outside is and you know who Mm. who people are on the inside yeah the quality of the character right yeah yeah Yeah. so would you say then because i get the sense and i got the sense even before Mm. we dove down here um that te ao maori was quite influential and what's the link between what you're doing now yeah social currency i guess for me yeah i suppose when you talk about the word whanau um i have probably just a big heart for Māori people because I see that the statistics against them Mm -hmm. are huge as well. So, you know, 50 to 60% of prison population is Māori. So it's it's something that I'm convinced needs to change. Yeah. And that's why I do believe that we need to change the way we're doing things and Mm. be more empathetic, be less judgmental, be more open Mm. and fano like which is yeah really it's it's opening your arms to everybody mm. yeah which i yeah i guess what i'm getting at is that the the foundation of what you're building mm. with social currency mm. seems to me to have at the heart of it this idea of yeah. reaching out to others who are less fortunate yes. and building them up with resilience yeah which i think is it's not a very individualistic western concept which is more about look after yourself and um, if you can take it from that guy because he doesn't notice it do it you know Uh, oh yeah that's such a broad categorization but Mm. you get what i'm talking about i do understand yeah you know that that whereas the maori cultures to me seems a bit more holistic and it's more of a you know like when you introduce yourself Mm -hmm. it's not what do you do it's Mm -hmm. more who are you where are you 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 come from yeah yeah yeah, which Mm -hmm. i think is something that's we've gotten skewed and it's missing Whereas in Western culture, it's more, oh, hi, highly so what do you do yeah. immediately? You know, yeah. like it's not setting the scene of where yeah. are you from? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Which so is what I'm trying a little bit. I think I understand change. where you're getting from. Yeah. yeah. It's, um, yeah, what social currency is about is more about the giving and that empathy side of things where mm. um, I only need a certain amount myself mm. and I see a need. And I want to fill that need as much as 
physically possible, mm. which is, yeah, I mean, you can only do so much in your own capacity, and that's why I think that creating a whānau really mm. in that true sense is, is the way to go. It's so critical, yeah. Well, if only our whole society could be like that, right? <laughs> if we looked yeah. after each other, yeah, it's it would solve simple. a lot of problems. Yeah, just, just start giving your money away. That'd be, that'd be great. Invest it strategically. Yeah. yeah. Create yeah. create social change. Yeah. So if people want to find out more, mm. um, website address, mm-hmm. how do they connect with you? Yeah, so socialcurrency.nz, mm-hmm. probably the easiest way. I've got Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure to talk with you because yeah. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. I didn't expect yeah. the um, near-death experience at age 11, <laughs> <laughs> but that no. was great. And um, it really set the scene, I think, for what came later, which was, yeah. you know, that I, I love, you know, carpe diem. I love mm. your your approach which is live each day you don't know how long you've got make the most of it which is definitely what i yeah i fully Mm. agree with that because i've seen too many situations where people take for granted Mm. their situation and Mm -hmm. think oh when i retire i'll do that Mm -hmm. or you know when i have a bit more money and i've bought this car then i'll do then i'll volunteer Mm. whereas actually nothing is given is it so no and i think you know everybody to some extent has something that they can use mm. that can benefit somebody else right now yeah um whether that's just sitting down and having a coffee with somebody and talking mm. about something um or giving if it's a monetary thing or a you know a skill that they might impart to somebody else mm. it's just some really simple stuff mm. yeah no that's great well thank you so much for coming and having yeah. a having a having talk me. And um, yeah, it'll be fascinating to watch and see how it develops. Yes. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. Cool. Terrifying, but exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Cool. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Lisa. For me, it was quite challenging to think about how she's approaching her career and using it as a way to impact others. I haven't quite decided which interview I'm going to release next because I've got about 12 recorded, so I'm just going to choose from them, but it might be Joanna Norris, who's the CEO of Christchurch New Zealand. We'll just have to wait and see. And also, I might put out a bonus episode from the Social Enterprise Unconference, so just be watching out for that. Thanks, everybody, for listening and appreciate the ratings and reviews. I do read all of them, and thank you, Pat, for your comment. Wonderfully surprising and eclectic mix of interviews. And that's exactly what I'm hoping to achieve with this podcast, to interview a wide variety of people. Until next time.